the one thing I, <laughs> I learned in market research is that even the, the general manager of Oreo does no strategic planning without fresh insights about their consumers. I kid you not. You would think they would be so arrogant that they would just say, research, screw the consumer. My name's Don Draper. I'm going to make it up. We're Oreo, beat my chest like a gorilla. We'll do it. No, no. These people don't run these businesses that way. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. You can join our online community right now, where we're going further, faster together at community.evolvecpg.com. Join us. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Dr. James Richardson, author of Ramping Your Brand and founder of Premium Growth Solutions, about the actual data behind how brands grow and the importance of retaining customers. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Gage. I'm a culture anthropologist who wandered into the back door of business through market research first, and then I moved into strategy consulting for leadership teams at big food and beverage companies. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. I've, I've almost finished your book, Ramping Your Brand, and I've been really enjoying the book and digging into, started following you on LinkedIn and digging into more of your background. I thought it would be really interesting to both kind of talk about your background because I think you've got a unique mix of experience, but also dive into some of the content in the book that I think would be super helpful for other people and like, well, encourage them to read the full book. But if we can give them a little, some nuggets from, from the book, that'd be great. So before we dive into the book though, like you started out in cultural anthropology, what drew you into that in the first place? And then along your journey, why did you decide to leave academia? I bet we have a lot of liberal arts grads listening. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Myself included. (laughs) So yeah, I wanted to be a professor from the age of 16. So I think I'm 50 now and that clearly didn't work. (laughs) But it was probably for the best. I got into anthropology because I had questions about, I think, the human condition that were driving me nuts. And I also didn't had zero interest in traditional office culture and working in like a business, Mm -hmm. which is ironic. (laughs) So, you know, I also have high functioning autism. I didn't know that till I was 35. And so a lot of these decisions were probably being made by my mind adapting to my weaknesses. And academia is a great place for people like me to go basically hide from the universe, which is not necessarily a great motive in life. <laughs> so, but I do, I do like to, th- I'm an analyst at heart and that hasn't really changed. So I, I left for a bunch of reasons, most of which nobody wants to hear about. <laughs> but when I made that decision, I, I went into market research because I figured I needed some at least analytical place to land. Otherwise, I I didn't feel like I was going to be comfortable. And that turned out to be, I mean, it was awkward, but it was it was awkward having business clients. But I, I definitely at first, but I adapted slowly, uh, slower than I should have. <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, it was ended up being a really great transition. I just found pretty quickly that it. I really enjoy market research for like oh, CPG companies okay. because 
the people we were working with aren't really, they weren't decision makers. So when I first, I got a chance early on to work with some, some CMOs. Yeah. And once I got to that level in the corporate world, started having conversations at that level, it got a lot more interesting, to be honest. And so what I, I, I transitioned into consulting pretty early on. Yeah. And so we were building- and Your business is premium growth solutions, right? Right. And that's what I do now full-time. And I decided to work with early stage companies because the gap, the gap in terms of like the strategic planning, which is what I help clients with, is the biggest there in terms of just the lack of experience in doing that for your average early stage company. And, ca- and contrary yeah. to what we see in the business media, folks, the average, the average early stage company that makes it to eight figures, is, the founders are not professional from professionals from the industry. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So don't don't be fooled by who gets the press time, because yeah. a lot of it has to do with PR agencies. Yeah. So so, so lot, most of the people are like my, most of my clients. They're they are. I just said it in a blog post. They designed something really clever. It took off, and they're now having a no shit moment. Like, oh, <laughs> I, now this can't fail because I'm actually succeeding. Oh crap! Yeah. Right. Believe me, the terror grows as these businesses scale. Like once you start succeeding, yeah. it gets more terrifying because now there's something at stake to lose, right? And so that's where I try Absolutely. to come in and take what I learned at the big companies. I mean, I've worked in you know over seventy five different categories all over the grocery store and work with almost every multinational in CPG. <laughs> so I know what I know, sort of the patterns, and I know what was useful about that process. Very little, um, and I've taken the just the good stuff. And then I've adapted it with the research you see in my book to create a, basically a stripped down strategic planning process that just, that makes sense for a, a seven figure or eight figure company that's doing well already and wants to keep growing. You don't work with startups anymore. Is there a reason? Yeah, I think, well, to be honest, I don't get a lot of them approaching me. Yeah. Um, Especially because they book. just because they yeah. don't know what they don't know yet, maybe. <laughs> well, that that could be. I don't. That could be. I mean, I haven't done a survey. I would love to have done a survey for my book. Of, hey, <laughs> here's what eighty percent of startup founders believe about the universe. But it, it, there's, there's no something for addition too. <laughs> yeah, I know. there's no way to find them. There's no way to get a, a generalized sample. Anyways, so I I found I actually did work with startups when I was writing the book because I needed to kind of. It was partly to pay the bills, but mainly to do market research. I need to understand my client better to help my own business. So of course. Um, it ended up being really good market research for the book because I was able to write it in a tone that would appeal to people who were ambitious, but amateur. Yeah. The secondary audience for the book is actually the pros. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know, like John okay. Forger, who, who I work with, because <laughs> they... Rather, I mean, I could have written, you know, it very, it would be very easy to write a book. Here's what professionals don't understand about early stage brands, right? But that, that becomes, was very argumentative really quickly. <laughs> yeah. so, to reach, to reach people who are actually have experience, but are still missing things, it's much easier to talk to another audience. Who are the amateurs? Because they're, most of them are not crazy arrogant. They're, they know what that they don't, they may not know exactly what they don't know, but they do know that they don't know stuff. 
Yeah, they knew that they they know that they're new to the industry or new to being a CEO or new to being a founder or new to being a fundraiser. But what I found to answer your question is that startups in what I call phase one under half a million in company revenue, they are so overwhelmed with operational cash flow issues. They do not often have the cognitive ability to step back and have a strategic planning session. So yeah. one of it is emotional and cognitive. There's no space for this, for what I do. And the other thing is that they don't have any data on their fans. So I'm, right. I, uh, the one thing I, <laughs> I learned in market research is that you can't, even the, the, the general manager of Oreo does no strategic planning without fresh insights about their consumers. I kid you not. You would think they would be so arrogant that they would just say, research, screw the consumer. My name's Don Draper. I'm going to make it up. We're Oreo, beat my chest like a gorilla, we'll do it. No, no, these people don't run these businesses that way. I almost feel like the bigger the company, the more necessary the research, by which I mean, the bigger the company, the more people there are in the company, the more people that are there probably not from a background in that company or a passion for that product, but like they're just ladder climbers in the corporate world. And so they get in there and they literally like, I've talked to people in these um, big conglomerates where they get bounced from brand to brand like every year or two. <laughs> so they're coming into some of these some of these companies like Oreo, not knowing anything about who's buying Oreo or what the sales look like. So like correct, having some correct. research yeah. the, to like ground them a little more is helpful. Yeah, it keeps them objective. It's also a training tool for the like you yeah. said for the staff who have to go and do things. But you know the the people who actually make the big decisions are not the brand mm -hmm. managers, it's the general managers. Those people don't rotate nearly as often. So there yeah, is some okay, more continuity sense. there. And that's why I did a lot of consulting work because they would bring in people who wanted a fresh pair of their eyes. Are you still doing consulting work with some of the bigger brands like that? No, I, I, I shut that all off when I started this company. Um, I do do corporate speeches, that's about it. But I, I don't enjoy working for those teams per se. How are you working with companies right now? Because I know you're obviously a consultant fractional, but are you like coming in and engaging with them for like three years or are you coming in, writing a plan and popping out? So most of the, I start by doing strategic planning work. And those are, that is a combination of the client and me working to collect some fresh consumer information. I usually run the survey on my platform. And I have a, I basically have created a five minute ANU based on consuming those documents for 10 years. <laughs> They're normally 40 minute surveys from hell. I kid you not. I don't know who the hell takes these things. But anyways, so I've got this super lean version, which gives us the behavioral insights for, for the process. And then the set, the session itself is a one or two day shebang. And, and yeah, so they, they either leave with that. Or they put me on retainer. So I'm always open to going on retainer with clients who want. And, and you know, it's usually the teams who, who have some kind of, they have some, either like a, a fairly junior person in, in a marketing role or something like that. So they want that coach there. And what I do, I'm more like a coach sounding board in those retainers. I'm like, I'm like the general manager that the CEO can't be because they're not a professional. Yeah. <laughs> You're almost like an ad hoc, ad hoc advisory board member. <laughs> yeah, right. But the nice thing is that I, I actually will tell you the truth because you're paying me to do so and I'm not. I don't have a conflict of interest called I wrote you a $5 million check. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You don't want that to get me going on boards and 
anyways. The way kids, one of the things I love about you is you've got very strong opinions. (laughs) Kids, the way you, you, the way you design a board is the way you design a dissertation committee. The goal is to all, the goal is have them eating out of your hands. Yeah. (laughs) So you only put people on the board. Impressive. Yes, men. Yes. That is the role of the board. If you have a board that actually has opinions, you've already lost. (laughs) There's so many things like that that are broken about the business world, I feel. Yeah, but that's what the predatory investor is, is the guy who they don't. They don't want you to actually run the company. They want to run the company. Yeah. So they go look for people who are easily bullied, of which there are many, unfortunately. (laughs) so yeah that's sort of what i do okay well let's jump into the book for a bit as well one of the things i was really liking about the book is just breaking down the different growth curves or different growth plans for brands because when you're new to the industry and you're like seeing all these case studies of these quote-unquote overnight successes or or these big brands that get launched with tons of money and you're like okay i'm gonna copy that formula i'm gonna do what they do But when you don't have all that money, when you don't have all the resources, when you don't have distribution channels, et cetera, that plan is going to fail. And that's why a lot of these companies probably fail is because they're not picking the right growth plan, right? So I liked that you broke down the different growth models. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I talk, so it's in, this is a gauge talking about the introduction of my book, which if you read nothing else, is the most important. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, there's basically... What we found in the work that we did that the Hartman Group let me publish, thanks to them, thanks again to them, is that most of the brands by the late 2010s that had scaled to nine figures that were natural organic, they had done it in this sort of slow, horrendously painful <laughs> geometric linear growth curve in you know, anywhere from 15 to 25% year over year growth. Now, that's really good growth compared to the market. That's phenomenal. That, in fact, it's so phenomenal. If I had half a million dollars, I didn't know what to do with. I'd find a company like that and just throw it in there because I get a guaranteed yeah. return. <laughs> yeah, totally. In ten years, I would guarantee return. So it's not boomer bust. It's nice. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be know. a unicorn tech stock return, but it would be a guaranteed return. Hey, y'all! We're going to take a quick break to let you know about a new podcast called Climify for designers, educators, and sustainability geeks. Host and design educator Eric Benson interviews acclaimed climate scientists and sustainability experts to find out how designers can help combat the climate crisis in their college classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. You can find Climify on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation and become a climate designer, you can follow the show on Instagram at Climify Podcast or head over to our great teaching resources at climatedesigners.org slash edu. All right, now let's get back to our conversation. The problem is that most of the brands grew that slowly. And if you look in data today, you're going to still see most of them growing in that sort of low double-digit range. But what we found in the in this randomized sample of brands, about a thousand brands that we looked into, was that the ones that made it to nine figures, almost three quarters of them did it through this skate ramp growth curve called that I 
dub in the book and it, it's exponential growth. And the thing about exponential growth that's interesting is that it's not easy to achieve and sustain. However, once you have the design DNA as your foundation, and that really comes down to, I hate to say it, you know, your hero product, your hero UPCs, and essentially the wrapping, the package symbolism on your D2C site or the website or the, sorry, or the shelf that they're seeing, um, that's basically like an enormous amount of your win right there. And in fact, it's so much of the win that that's why I wrote so much, like a third of the book on design. If you you underthink this, guys, and just start throwing money at something that's underperforming because you didn't look at the KPIs, you're just sort of imagining that it's successful, (laughs) then this is where people people do sort of drive the, the car into the ditch. But I would say that overall, Gage and the audience, you know, the biggest actual problem is that people are growing too slowly in today's market to survive the copycats. So, so that's actually, you know, the people who work with me are terrified of deceleration. I, that, that's basically my client audience. <laughs> they're doing well, but they're also terrified that, oh shit, we're going to hit a glass ceiling. And then this dude over here who signed a venture cap, who has some predatory investor who ball busted them into a bad deal, but he's going to throw money at them. They're going to take our, the wind out of our sail. I mean, that's my ideal client because <laughs> they've, they've got a strong business, but they have a legitimate competitive concern now. And that- Absolutely. And in your experience, is that, are those copycat threats more likely to come from underneath, like other startups that saw what you're doing and want a piece of that action? Or uh, well, from if you go the top in, if you go in, with like it, big conglomerates launching their own version of what you're it's, doing? It's both. But early on, I would say up to about 25 to $30 million in revenue. If you were the first, the problem is mainly from big companies having done a lot of this work. Uh, big companies do scan emerging brands down to like about a million bucks through the scanner data, to, uh, you know, in their core categories. Absolutely. It's very easy to do. In fact, I ran around the country training them to do it. Sorry. That's my big, yeah, exactly. So yes, I have a guilt driven business. You're correct. So, uh, it's probably partially honest, but they, they're aware of them, but they don't actually give a crap until you get start to get to 30 million and plus because now, and if you're still growing fast, then they get really concerned. And that's when they might start planning a line extension to block you or at least to jump on the bandwagon. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that most of the line extensions from the big companies, they may go out of the gate and make 20 million, 30 million right away, but they never grow because the trademark, you know, the trademarks from those brands are are just not premium and they're not credible. So when they go do the natural version of Oreo, it never goes anywhere. And I have looked at almost every case study of companies doing that. They get their little sliver, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Chobani. So, you know, Chobani just plows ahead. So, I don't actually have any concern when I tell my clients about, you know, what Kraft and Coke are going to do. I mean, say, they can outspend you, but what you're saying is they don't have the credibility to come in and compete with yeah, you. Yeah, they will. Here's the one way to put it. They can move fast to rip you off, stick their line extension out. But if the idea that you were that you offer to the universe really doesn't have a lot of mar- uh, addressable market anyways, I mean, if it has a lot of addressable market, sorry, 
then there's going to be plenty of room for you to sell the premium version. Does that make sense? So if, if hummus, for example, if hummus is a $3 billion more addressable market space, then there's plenty of room for you to grow the premium version of Sabra. Plenty. Yeah. In fact, that, that brings up another thing from your book <laughs> about kind of choosing two niche of products. I right. think you go off, go off on like kale chips or something. For well, example. this is my current concern with hard kombucha, yeah. for example. I don't, it has legs, but it also has got some problems. And a lot of people went in fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, really fast. And you get some heavy hitters with it, like some rich dudes. So I would be more concerned with the rich serial entrepreneur, I shall not mention names, who's got way too much money in his Napa Valley mansion or wherever the hell he lives. You know, because he can snap his fingers and get a world class team that's functioning at a better level on day one. Right. And so they become more of a problem. And that's when you want to really bone up on your plan, your strategy and what you're doing. I mean, the worst sector right now is plant-based uh, dairy alternative. I've never, have you been to Sprouts Gage? Have you counted the number <laughs> of, in the shelf stable? Go to the yeah, shelf I stable thing. It's insane. Yeah, I haven't been to Sprouts in a while, but I do know that category is blowing up. There's all these brands and they're moving like, they're moving half a unit per store per week, one unit per <laughs> store. It's insane. Yeah, I don't know how, I mean, it's probably just like the, the Wild West days of that where everyone's fighting for a little bit of market share, but only a few brands will come through. Yeah, so those, what I would call the hyper-crowded spaces, unfortunately, money money is required to even to have hope in hell. Like you don't have the time to do what's in my book. Yeah. So there's like the, the inventing <laughs> so. a new category. There's like the inventing a new category of things that people don't know they want or they definitely don't want. And then there's <laughs> there's yeah. the, and that takes forever to try to grow <laughs> and change the industry like 10, 20 yeah. years or something. But then there's like you're saying the super oversaturated crowded markets that people so, need to avoid. I think the the value there's a value in innovation that has some serious technical insulation from copycatting and you know to be honest plant plant based meat had that for quite a while we forget that but it did so the time the mar- the market adv- there's a long period of time when you know you know Kellogg hadn't done the r&d yeah you know, they, they didn't, they had, now once they read their 7,000th PR release from Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, yeah, they started their R&D and lo and behold, Incognito is like, I, I think I read somewhere, it's like the number two or three retail market. Boom. You know, so definitely have screwed over those two companies at retail, right? Because Morningstar is a real, it's a brand that everyone knows. <laughs> so, so this is the challenge. I mean, those are the spaces I would tell people just to stay away from unless you are heavily funded. But that's not a reason not to innovate in other areas because as long as food culture, for example, is continually innovating in certain parts of the grocery store, there's going to be room for what I call in the book, the new modern way of doing X, right? And, and as long as you can be that, plow away on it, and double the business every year. You can grow exponentially even right now. So I do think it's hard being it, it's getting harder to create scale ramp rounds, I will say, in part because it's harder to find the areas in the store that are receptive to that level of innovation. 
And partly because so many people are looking at the whole store and finding all the little niche areas and there's only so many uh, categories left <laughs> to reinvent. But yeah, there's probably a limited number of categories that were, yeah, there's a lot of demand for some big reinvention. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the, the companies that are just trying to invent a new category are going to have a long, expensive road, but, but there's probably, you know, if you're going to try to grow a, a brand and maybe it doesn't have to be a skate ramp brand, but just you want a decent growth, like just finding something where there's a gap in that, that market, like they don't have the gluten-free option yet, or they don't have the vegan option yet or what, whatever it is. And, you know, just make a solid product that's slightly different from what else is everything else. Yeah. Is I mean, that, if you read my book, if you read the first part of a couple of times, the, the big takeaway is don't over innovate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Make small <laughs> tweaks, <'Cause>, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that's how you wind up buried in a in sort of the niche within the niche. I mean, I think Absolutely. that's been going on with some of the baby food brands recently, to be honest, just to be yeah. honest, uh, is that you've got a, actually a not very big category. Then you've got a category which behaviorally and culturally is actually driven mostly by lower income moms. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> so then so, you have to delete, you end up having large chunks of the category that are totally out of reach for pro from price alone. There's just not a lot of market space left for. And the weird thing is that people can come up with all sorts of exotic innovations in baby food. Yeah. Because <laughs> so so you've, got, you've got the mom's anxiety over child development. That's basically what you're working with. Which is very that's a very fertile area. <laughs> so, the market. Yep. I mean, that's where a lot of consumers enter the natural organic space. For example, is when they just have babies. So it is a obvious like first step for sure. So we've only got a, a few minutes left here, but um, I'd love to part some of your knowledge onto the listeners. So, wh what do you feel like are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing people make right now, and therefore? What would your advice advice be for a brand that wants to grow through these <laughs> kind of odd times that we're facing with, you know, inflation, supply chain difficulties, oversaturated markets, et cetera? Yes. I think in the current un unknown environment, and one of the biggest unknowns gauge is that we haven't really had, we haven't entered a period of sustained high inflation, which I believe we're in since the 1970s. And back then, premium CBG did, basically didn't exist. So we do have an unknown that I recognize as well as an author and a researcher. What I would tell people is that this is the time, this is the time to really step back and assess the fundamentals of, of your of velocity for your business. How are you able to increase essentially your annual revenue per consumer, whether it's digital or brick? <laughs> and how can you have a relationship with your consumer that will guarantee essentially longer retention. Um, now, the problem is that retention gets analyzed in CBG under this horrendous term loyalty, which is, <laughs> loyalty, which is, yeah. which is almost like religious and overtones. Um, yeah. <laughs> it leads, you know, so it's like, and I think the reality is that no, but most people aren't that exclusive to brands in a category. But if you can, if you've invested the time to acquire somebody who's buying more than once a month, which is what you need to be doing, you want to keep them. This is the time right now economically where you want to work even harder to keep your fans around. 
And it's going to be a lot easier to sell them another two packs a year. You know, this is not going to be an easy time to throw money and try to buy trial in the middle class. That's a game for the rich overfunded, you know, eight figure companies. And I work with one of them and I tell them to do that. I mean, I, hey, you got the money? Go. <laughs> but that's just not going to work if you're a million dollar company, five million dollar company. You got to focus on your fans. And this is just another reason. This is like an extreme situation where that's so important. Yeah. And do you feel like there's like one clear winning strategy for doing that, for like retaining, focusing on your fans and retaining them? I don't think or there's a single Is it just like it depends all. on your category, it depends on your product, depends on your brand? I don't think there's a simple, a single tactical playbook because some categories have a, they skew towards things like field marketing and event experiences like liquor um, for cultural reasons. Uh, and, uh, and in other categories, you're going to have to use other techniques. Could be recipe marketing. But I think the point is that you want to create a direct owned media relationship with your consumers. That That's basically what I would say to answer your question. So to me, that's an email list or an SMS list. If you cannot build that, if you cannot build that, over time, that's ex that's actually diagnostic information. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's been one of the <laughs> best things from the pandemic is everyone realized, oh crap, <laughs> we well, need direct I, relationships. So well, a lot of brands I, have started building those, but it is valuable. And to me, it's about it's about understanding your fans. It's more about research and better strategy yeah, and better planning, more than just about sales volume. So that's one reason to have a D2C website and a Shopify account. Uh, is not so is not always to scale volume, but it's also to have a way to learn from your consumers. Now, and that's the mistake, honestly, that I see people continuing to make is they're not they're so focused on selling and growing the top line, more cases, more cases, more cases, that they're not learning about their fans in those early years when that they've got to figure that out. They got to figure out. <laughs> so. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's a million times easier to A-B test and learn some data or whatever around your consumers in an email list or on your website than it is at retail, right? So, Or something even more 20th You can move fast. Even 20th century, like just if you have 1,500 people on email list, send out an email list and you know offer them a free case if they'll talk to you for 30 minutes on the phone. Nice. <laughs> you know, like, you'd be surprised. Old school phone calls. What? Yeah, no, what I tell people just all the time, like, hello, talk to them. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes <laughs> picking up the phone is the most important thing you can do. <laughs> That's awesome. There, I mean, the beauty is that the early stage companies, Gage, that we're talking about, you actually have consumers who are, they're itching to do that. Like, that. <laughs> there's no problem getting them on the phone, like. Oreo has a problem getting people on. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, these early stage companies are usually built around some sort of greater purpose, often just like solving a, a allergen problem or building more equity in the food system. So their fans are a little bit more emotionally attached from day one, whereas the emotional attachment to Oreo is the sugar sugar high you get for a moment after, <laughs> after you eat them, right? But you don't... Nobody, very few people are like as attached to the brand unless it's just something you grew up with and it's like a comfort food for you. Yeah. I mean, I think, remember, the, the if you're really innovating in the food and beverage space, you are actually altering the culture. Mm, yeah. Like you are the hero change agent in some weird way. Whereas when you're running Oreo, 
you are a slave to culture's definition of what Oreo is. And they used to, all the marketing people used to hate me at those at the big companies because I would tell them this, like, you don't control your brand. Your, contr- your brand is controlled by society. Like, the best hope you have is to work within that definition. And if you, if you keep ignoring it, you're going to keep having the same bad performance. <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good place to wrap up because I know you got to get going. I appreciate you popping in in for a moment to share a little bit of your wisdom and talk about your book and your uh, consulting practice. And thanks for sharing that wisdom with us. I think it's just much needed information for a lot of people who are especially jumping into this industry, kind of green and not knowing what they're doing, like giving them some base context on all the issues they could avoid, I think will help a lot of people skip a few years of hard learned lessons. So I appreciate that. I hope so. Ramping your brand is on Amazon for those of you who who have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. In the show notes and links and everything, we'll link out to all your you know various sites as well as the book. So they'll know where to find it. Cool. cool. All right. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about James, his consultancy, Premium Growth Solutions, or his book, Ramping Your Brand, visit premiumgrowthsolutions.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>